0: Adam Thorpe was born in Paris in 1956. He's the author of eight previous novels, including Alverton, and, and, most recently, The Standing Pool, two collections of stories and five books of poetry. He lives in France with his wife and family. Welcome to the Bibliophile.
1: Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here.
0: Here at the International Festival of Authors in Toronto. What i uh, like to do is to talk about your latest novel, Hod, in light of a recent book written by William Flesh. It's called Come Comeuppance, and it's about the evolution of cooperation. And in it, he suggests that narratives tend to contain three basic figures. An innocent, someone who exploits that innocence, or that innocent, and someone else who seeks to punish the exploiter. Perhaps you could take over at this point and tell us what, the novel is about and the conceit of it and why we tell stories as humans.
1: I first wanted to write about Robin Hood or concede the idea of writing about Robin Hood some seven years ago. I was asked by the BBC Radio to write a short story uh, in a series of short stories uh, based on Robin Hood myth, Robin Hood legends. But I was it, it had to be in the voice of one of the characters in, in the legends, and I chose Robin Hood himself. And and had to, obviously had to reread. Roger Lancelin Green's version of the Robin Hood legend and much enjoyed it and realised how important it was to me as a kid to, to hear these stories, how much my own kids had, had enjoyed them when they were younger.
0: Uh, yeah, I, re- I must have read it
1: 30 yeah, times. Ex- exactly, and, it, and, and also not just the classic versions like, like Lancelin Green's, but also the, the various film versions, there's a television series, a very well-known uh, BBC, actually it wasn't BBC, it was it was ITV television series.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Errol um, Flynn, wasn't
0: he, Robin Hood? Yeah, that was way. earlier, that yeah, was in 30s. the 30s.
1: Yeah. The 50s television series, in fact, which is one I remember watching in the 60s, yeah. he was already 10 years old, was written by uh, refugees from McCarthy. Uh, From the McCarthy um, oppression, as you might say, in the states, they came. Yeah, Yeah, the blacklisted authors. They came to Britain, and they were given this job to to write a series about Robin Hood. And of course, being uh, socialist or communist sympathisers, of course, Robin Hood, their Robin Hood was of course a very socialist or whatever hero. Um, Yeah, sort of equaling things out. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. and he his main interest was was the poor. And so my version of Robin Hood. You know, up to a few years ago, it was pretty well everyone else's version, which is that he's, he's, he's out there to to rob the rich, to to give to the poor. He's a, he's a kind of glorified social worker,
0: really, or certainly a... a serving the role of a, almost the a role of government. Government sort of taxes the rich to give to the, <laughs> the poor, in a way. Except, of course, what's great about
1: the, um, the, the romanticized Robin Hood uh, version, which is what we grew up with, um, was that he was very anti-establishment because yeah. that fitted with the 60s uh, and mm-hmm. the, the writers who were blacklisted were obviously anti- against the American government and certain aspects of the American government and so on so they transposed that to an English forest um, and everyone, you know it furthered the, the that version of Robin Hood
0: mm-hmm.
1: now when I started conceiving the idea of writing a novel about Robin Hood that would actually be a novel that would be speaking from the Middle Ages. It would be not about the Middle Ages so much as speaking from within the Middle Ages. That was my, I've always wanted to write a novel set in in the Middle Ages. Which the, the problem with it before was that was the language, um, because you know I'm primarily interested in language and apart from storytelling, but also the language in which the story
0: is told. And it's very, very rich and evocative of the, of the period. Well,
1: that, exactly because I mean one's got one's got two possibilities. Either one writes it in a vaguely sort of modern, well, yeah, a modern version, uh, and that means you're standing outside the time because, you know, language is what makes a, a period. For me, anyway, mm. um, what makes you able to go back to through history to a certain period. Um,
0: because uh, that's how they see the world. Really. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Linguistically, it's very important. So. Um, I th- that's one alternative to write in modern English. Barry Armsworth does it in, in uh, Morality Play, a wonderful novel. The other alternative is to write it in Middle English uh, which of course would mean your sales would be very little or few and <laughs> it would take a long time to write. The other is, which I suddenly conceived of in a sort of flash of, of inspiration or chance actually, it was in a second-hand bookshop in Brighton, um, and I came across this book full of translations from Latin medieval texts. I thought that's the solution, is my text is in Latin. Yeah. The original text is in Latin, which is absolutely more than possible. Most most uh, writing was in Latin in the, you know, say, 12th yeah. century.
0: Yeah. Which is where most of the writing came from. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So the question is to translate it, and then I could translate it into any English I wanted, uh, which would be kind of paralleling the, the, the Latin, obviously. Um, but it could have a, a modern flavour, it could have a, a, a quasi-medieval flavour, whatever. And I chose the my fictitious translator is imagined to have been in the First World War to have suffered a head wound uh, to have discovered this manuscript in a bombed-out church on the Somme during the battle, you know, on the Somme battlefield. Mm. Um, And because he's a medieval scholar he brings it home and and, and translates it into an English that is therefore um, kind of Edwardian or, or 1920s uh, English, which is an English I love. Mm. Um, it's already fairly historical itself but it's it's the birth of, it's, it's the English in which the early modernist novels were written. You mm-hmm. think of James Joyce and Virginia Woolf and so on, so it feels very modern but at the same time it's kept somehow a 19th century richness to it. So um, once I'd conceived that idea um, then I could use all the research that I've been building up for several years um, at the st- in the service of of this narrative, um, which is based on uh, Robin Hood and the Monk, which is the earliest Robin Hood ballad we have. Mm-hmm. That was written down in the mid-15th century, so for- about 1450, but is based on a much earlier uh, spoken or sung ballad, an oral version. Now, what, what I discovered in my research about Robin Hood was that Robin Hood, the original Robin Hood, I mean what I mean is the original legend because historically we don't know we know absolutely nothing about him.
0: Um, but very like early William Tr- uh, like L- Shakespeare.
1: Well in a the sense
0: we know something about him but Shakespeare's a, a
1: really, really strange case in point because mm. I mean we ought to know much more about yeah. him, but he's the invisible man, you know. But Robin Hood himself occupies this very mysterious space between myth and history. We believe he existed. I mean, we, the popular <coughs> belief is that he existed. Mm. When you say to people there is actually no proof that Robin Hood actually existed, there are me- generally people are surprised. Yeah. They believe he was a real outlaw uh, in, in the Middle Ages, whatever century. Part of history. Part of history. Yeah. And in a sense, he's, so, he's such a real legend, as you might say, that he is, in a sense, a historical figure.
0: Mm. Um, well, when you, when you look at it, in terms of our lives, we both grew up with him. He is a part of our history, Absolutely. for sure. And, and that image has been imprinted. Uh,
1: exactly. And, you know, you open the newspaper almost every day, I've noticed there is a reference to somebody being the Robin Hood of whatever, the financial world or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's always, you know, He's used as a metaphor or a simile. Yeah. But what I was very... Shocked to discover, uh, you know, in my ignorance, I hadn't known this. Was that the original Robin Hood was basically a gangster mm. who didn't do anything for the poor, mm-hmm. who locked people's heads off, you know, without worrying too much about it. Mm-hmm. Um, surrounded by thugs, right? surrounded by pretty tough guys. I mean, the, the only the only um, outlaws in the original version are Little John, uh, Will Scarlet, and Much the Miller's Son. Um, Maid Marion isn't there, Friar Tuck isn't there. Mm. Uh, so Alan Dale, the, the, you know, the, the singer, the, 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 the balladeer, isn't there. So this is... reading it I got very excited because I felt this is a genuine medieval figure who nevertheless, despite his totally unappealing... well, the only a- appealing thing about him is that he's witty, he's dashing and he's brave, otherwise... He's, he's, a, he's a glorifying gangster, but we still love gangsters, don't we? Yeah, and, you know, Tony Soprano we love. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, um, but it, what it felt was, was very medieval, in the sense that the Middle Ages was a fairly lawless, quasi-lawless period, it was very dangerous to go out at night. Mm. Uh, people didn't, you know, people went to bed at, 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 at pretty well as soon as it got dark, mm-hmm. obviously for, there wasn't electricity and so on, but also because there were, the roads are very dangerous. And so on. So, and there are an awful lot of these outlaws, these gangsters in the woods, and so on.
0: Sort of not quite vigilantes, though, because they're not. They're
1: uh, not. So, yeah, they're, they're,
0: Well, they aren't. Their motive isn't necessarily to uphold any kind of law. It's to no, itself,
1: itself. They're des- de- de- desperate men. Yeah. I mean, they're desperate men. They've been cast out. They've killed someone, or they've fallen out with a baron. I mean, mm-hmm. you've got to remember that at this time England was was pretty well. The king was nominally in control. Uh, 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 and so on the government was normally in, tr- in control the court as you might say but but the fact is the uh, barons, the nobles had a, had a very strong hold on certain areas mm. and even the justices of the peace uh, they, they with their travelling court and so on um, were often subservient to the local um, you might almost say the local warlord actually because these barons were, a lot of them were glorified thugs <laughs> um, mm-hmm. so it was it was a, particularly in, in the period that, that we find first find Robin Hood, which is actually the 13th century, 1200s, uh, and not earlier, not not during the time of Richard the Lionheart. That is a late. And so basically, Robin <coughs> Hood was romanticised in the Renaissance, when he became King of the May games, mm. and he borrowed Maid, Maid Marian was borrowed from a French pastoral play. Uh, so she herself is originally a fictitious character. Right. Um, and they be- presided over the springtide festivities. Uh, then, as the Renaissance progressed, we move into the 18th and 19th centuries, um, he started getting this kind of quasi um, socialist kind of patina mm. around him. Mm. Uh, and we find him in Walter Scott's Ivanhoe, and he becomes very popular in France in Dumas, Robin mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, And just a People For for the ordinary people, of course, the side of him that was helping the poor and robbing from the rich and helping the poor became more and more attractive, became more and more important part of it.
0: Well, and I think that's where this idea of of our storytelling, and it's almost wish-fulfillment. This is how we would wish this character to be, because this is... uh, Well, first of all, the world uh, at the time uh, in England was... Was a Hobbesian world. It sounds yeah. like. Yeah. And.
1: Uh, well, as it is
0: now, really. As, <laughs> as, it, is, as it always is. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, or, really uh, <laughs> I agree with you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um. But so, in terms of this, this desire to, to tell stories—that, what that, that. Almost convey the a, a sense of justice that we you know, we humans are basically good. Mm. Mm. What do you think explains why the, there was a change in in this in this story?
1: That's a very complex subject that's been covered in in, in, in some some very interesting books about the growth of of uh, myths and legends, but particularly the growth of the Robin Hood legend. I mean, obviously the there was a lot of uh, injustice and inequality. There always is, there is now, but uh, particularly in the Middle Ages, it was kind of, I think, almost more overt, really, in mm. the feudal system and so on.
0: Mm. There weren't any social safety networks. No, nets. absolutely no. Yeah. Uh, uh, so clearly... It he, was, was, it was will, he was playing that role, in effect, wasn't he? A yeah. Kind I mean, of a social safety Well, when you net. think
1: of the springtime festivities, though, those are festivities that anyone could join in. I mean, it was, a, it was kind of... You know the peasants could the, the, could join in, the nobles could join in. It was kind of you know feast of fools as well. When when everything got inverted and the church and the laity kind of came together and and had had fun and f- feasted and so on. So inevitably, uh, the character who presided over these um, over these games and, and festivities and feasts and so on inevitably there was going to be a sense in which this character was on the side of. The, the ones who were worse off. Um, I mean, already, even in the early ballads, Robin Hood was a hater of the church, mm. the rich bishops and so on. Authority. He a, authority. He was already, obviously, as a gangster, or as an outlaw, he was anti-authority. Mm. He was particularly... Um, his target was particularly the church, because the church were great, wealthy landowners. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was a landless fugitive. So... Obviously when, when the, the, the oppressive side of society um, was, was up against, uh, sorry, when, when the, the peasants, the, the oppressed, were up against the oppressors, they needed a figurehead, they needed a leader. Mm-hmm. And you had various peasant, I mean the peasant revolt, um, the leaders of the peasant revolt, or John Ball, or characters like that, they, they didn't last very long because they took on authority and were quickly killed or executed or whatever.
0: Um, but they were kind of co-opted by the, uh, the other side, or they became well, uh, well, no, they were corrupted by power?
1: Or? Well, not really, no, they were just up against the, the might of the army. Okay, and they, and they and, were just, you know, they were just, I mean, their heads they, off. They, were, they were brave, in a sense, very early movements for social equality, um, but they had no hope, obviously, against uh, the contemporary military-industrial complex, as you <laughs> might say. Clearly, some kind of more legendary or poetic figure was needed. Mm -hmm. Uh, symbolic figure should we say
0: so that the uh, uh, average Joe could have some hope
1: exactly exactly Mm -hmm. I mean it was you know it comes back to telling stories already Robin Hood we don't know why Robin Hood became so popular so quickly certainly by the mid 13th century robbers uh, felons are being given the nickname Robbie Mm Hod or Rob Mm -hmm. Hod clearly the ballads are very early they're probably 13th century now my feeling and this is the feeling of Robin Hood scholars as well there is some figure historical figure at the heart of the Robin Hood legends it might be the Robert Hod on which I based my book Mm. who's mentioned twice in the Yorkshire Pipe Rolls which are the the records of the justices of the peace and he's described as a fugitive he's worth his chattels are worth 32 shillings sixpence he's somewhere off in the woods and he's mentioned the next year and he's given the nickname Hobby Hod and Robin is a diminutive of Robert, so that J.C. Holt, who's the great Robin Hood scholar, suggests that's a possibility. And for some reason, this very localised figure, who was maybe, you know, the Tony Soprano of, of, of Yorkshire or Nottinghamshire, depending on where you cite the, the, the early legend, through the balladeers, through the, the, the travelling minstrels, if they travelled, we're not sure they travelled, but anyway, through ballad, it went from ear to ear, as you might say, and spread very quickly. Because you've got to remember as well, the Middle Ages people did travel and travelled efficiently. Uh, they travelled good distances uh, in the day, even though the, the roads are often terrible. They did travel. There was a lot of movement in the Middle
0: Ages. So you stories, know, were, stories would Stories would circulate, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: So this was a story, it, he was not an attractive character, but he appealed, obviously clearly appealed, amongst probably a lot of other
0: ballads about other people. But but this one in particular hits a human what a human need a yearning for for justice i think yes i think so
1: he's a bit vindictive i mean i would say almost for justice, but perhaps in the early versions the punish punishing
0: of the scales. Someone who can who can punish the exploiter. I think so,
1: yeah. I mean it's a bit like throwing stones at the house of chief executive of the Royal Bank of Scotland, you know, which has happened recently mm-hmm. in Edinburgh. I'd have happily have joined in if I'd been up, up in Edinburgh. I mean there is that urge within one, mm-hmm. this anger. Robin Hood really expresses anger, social anger.
0: Well, we're doing our part, you know, we're honest, we're working hard, yep. we're poor. Look at these bricks.
1: Exactly. I mean, each ballad is different. Robin Hood and the Monk is probably the earliest ballad. The problem in it, I've, what I found very shocking in it, was that the monk who identifies Robin Hood in Nottingham, which leads to Robin Hood's arrest, he's doing his duty as a and also he's been robbed by Robin Hood, so he's got a reason to point him out. But he's a figure, obviously, of injustice, the, the rich monk, you know, the rich monasteries. The price is put in his head, obviously. Little John and much the Miller's son go off to basically kill him. And what is unpleasant in the ballad is that they not only cut the monk's head off on his way back to his monastery in Doncaster from Nottingham, they execute or lock the head of of, of his little page, his little boy page. And the thing is, there's no comment in the ballad about this. There's no moral comment. There's no pausing for saying... Yeah, you know, this is a bit tough, but there we go, guys. Mm -hmm. You know, he would have been a witness. He would have identified the fact that the murder of the monk was little John and -hmm. and much. It just says, and I'll I'll read you the quote, because it's the key, in a sense, the key quote from my novel. In the original, it's, John smote off the monkey's head. No longer would he dwell. So did much the little page. For fared lest he would tell. So the translation of that is, John struck off the monk's head. No longer would he stay the like did much to the little page for fear of what he'd say that's my translation
0: he shows no uh, no kind of uh, compassion, no mercy he's no. just a ruthless killer yeah, and yeah. if you had
1: that in a film you know, the godfather or whatever and you had a, a, a kid who is shot dead because he might witness a gangland killing, then that would be a pretty tough moment in the film and
0: it'd be pretty hard for you to, to sympathise with, with the gangster exactly, yeah but
1: then they release Robin Hood from prison. Said, these are Robin Hood and his merry men, you know, yeah. doing acts. Of, and there's another very famous ballad, Robin Hood and Guy of Gisborne, because Guy of Gisborne and the Sheriff of Nottingham are already the enemy in these early yeah. ballads, where he kills Guy of Gisborne, you know, slices up his face that his own mother wouldn't know him in the ballad. This is nasty stuff, and it's Robin Hood doing it.
0: Well, it's funny, too. I mean, I'm thinking now, we're talking about the gangsters, and I'm, I'm speaking with Adam Thorpe, who's the author most recently of the novel Hod. We've talked about the gangsters and this lack of conscience, this sort of almost psychopathic, character. But look what they did with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. They've turned them into anti-establishment heroes with with that movie. So there's clearly, getting back to my question, this need to find some kind of hero or or figurehead or emblem for the little guy to relate to. It's almost like a safety valve, because if we didn't have that Mm -hmm. to believe in, then there'd be anarchy or... Completely. I think that's
1: absolutely right. The Greek myths are really, I think, humanity's way of coping with pain and suffering and, and the fact of death and the fact that the gods they believed in seemed so, at times, malicious.
0: Childish Childish
1: yeah, I mean yeah. they're wonderful Because these, these characters Are so childish And, and so human in a sense mm-hmm. And yet they have You know godlike powers And we still read The Greek myths so They still mean something to us They're almost a- about Basic psychological states You know so I think stories, absolutely, they're therapy. I mean, I really think, mm. you know, when I write my novels, I'm creating a parallel world, and that's very therapeutic.
0: Yes, I'd like to get to that. So there's a, there's a couple of lovely quotes here I've got from you. Dreaming up a separate existence, how you identify and find writing. And poetry is a, a shaping of memory into significance.
1: Well, yes, specifically with, with poetry, I think. Poetry does draw on personal memory, It's a way of making sense
0: of of one's life. If you look at the myth of Robin Hood, you could lie to yourself to get some sort of meaning out of your life. In poetry, it's almost a way of soothing yourself and saying, yes, there is meaning, when maybe there really isn't any meaning.
1: That's true. It depends whether you feel that life has any meaning beyond a kind of chance you know, that whether humanity is merely a chance occurrence of, of molecules or whether there is some sort of higher significance in our human story. And certainly if you relate to that, if we come down a bit, sort of microscopic level to one's own personal life, there are moments obviously when one's own personal life, in the sort of existential sense, means absolutely nothing in terms of the, the, the wider picture. But I think for me, poetry is very much about exploring truth, in fact, the truth of certain moments. Not not just in my own life, but certain situations. But okay, let's let's look upon poetry as a kind of, particularly my poetry as a kind of reworking of memory, shaping it into significance. There's a random, you know, collection of of happenings in one's own life, or maybe one particular intense moment, or not even intense. You know, you go to a shopping centre and you have, for some reason, you remember this moment in the shopping centre, banal place on earth, and through language, the actual writing out of that memory articulates it in actually a very complex way and then you play with that and it's not about soothing I think it's about making sense of what appears to have no sense
0: understanding
1: it, understanding it understanding why you fixed on that particular moment and it's very much the interaction of life and language I mean for me it always comes down to language
0: well that's again that's the only way we have to explain to ourselves what's going on exactly it's the, it's, it is our own means
1: means of, of certainly of communication um, mm-hmm. well there's obviously gestural communication but
0: with we talk voice to ourselves inside, exactly yeah.
1: we're talking to ourselves exactly yeah. and no, so
0: with yeah. Robin Hood and this morphing of his real character into someone that's larger than life mm-hmm. and what are we doing? Lying about history?
1: Well I think we rework history in our own personal lives we rework the past to prove mm-hmm. ourselves whatever we were better than we thought we were at the time or to shine a golden light upon ourselves. But I think also that's what uh, people do On masse. In, in what I wanted to write was a novel about someone who's kind of a homicidal gangster, pretty yeah. psychopathic. And that's why I have hard as being part of this sect, which is a real sect, which exists in the Middle Ages, the Brotherhood of the Free Spirits. That's
0: right. They're, they're bigger than God. Larger. They're bigger than God. They yeah. can't
1: sin, you know. And...
0: The no I conscience, really.
1: There's no conscience. You, there yeah. is no such thing as sin. Obviously, in the context of the Middle Ages, you've been told, you know, this and that is a sin. You can't do anything. The church is watching you. There's a surveillance camera of the church watching you all the time. Clearly, there were those who didn't like this at all, who were proto-anarchists, who turned it into a, this, this kind of, really what I feel is, is potentially a psychopathic belief. There is no sin, there is no such thing as evil, there's no such thing as good. So any single act that you do is okay. He's a nihilist. Well, a nihilist, exactly. Yeah. Some of them, as they did, I mean, there were hundreds of thousands of followers of this sect. It was extremely popular mm. in sect. Some of them just ended up sort of free love and being nice to each other and the rest of it. That's kind of hippie commune type thing. Others... Murdered people, and, and they didn't like someone across the street and kill them. That's kind of psychopathic behaviour. When you mention that, I
0: think of uh, Anthony Burgess's... Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Exactly. Just breaking into the house and yeah. wreaking
1: havoc. Terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Charles Manson, mm-hmm. you know. You're either a, a thug and you just... No neck, and you just do this sort of thing. Or... You construct a set of beliefs around this to justify it, and this is what the pod does. He believes he's bigger than God. He is God. When he dies, the whole of creation will dissolve. This is monomania. The thing that fascinates me in history is that time and again we've had these malign individuals wrecking the human story. Uh, you know, the, the idea of the progress has been wrecked by single individuals who, for some totally unknown reason. Command total obedience. I mean, I think of Hitler, I'm thinking of Stalin, I'm thinking of Pol Pot, uh, Bin Laden. And we, um, them, we? and we follow them. And we follow them. And know? this
0: is why this thesis about cooperation I find yeah. sticks in the throat a bit. I, I can see how maybe Robin Hood's merry band would. Even within that, though, there's animosity. Right, yeah,
1: see Little John and Robin Hood. Yeah. in the early battles. Yes,
0: yeah. I can see perhaps within a group that there might be a, a benefit to cooperation. But certainly between various factions, it's very difficult to, to get us to cooperate. Mm. There's usually carnage before cooperation.
1: We're kind of moving into the realm of social psychology maybe now, which I'm, I'm not very hot on. But certainly there is a peculiar capacity in, in humanity to... Not do the obvious thing, which is to cooperate, benefit from cooperation, mm-hmm. and and not to cooperate with nature either. This is our biggest mistake.
0: And this is something that you're renowned for, is the way you're able to, uh, much like Lawrence and Hardy, to uh, evoke this wonderful uh, what, attachment to the, to the landscape.
1: D. H. Lawrence is my master. You know, he's my
0: maître. Some of his sunsets and, and uh, the hay sears in your imagination. I mean,
1: uh, there is an electricity in his writing that, that is quite extraordinary. I don't think anyone, aside perhaps from Shakespeare, certainly in English, and the writers in English, have, have matched that, that. There's some peculiar energy in his writing, particularly mm-hmm. when he's talking about nature and... Sex. Sex, obviously. A lot of the darker aspects as well, you know, jealousy and...
0: Can I interrupted you, you talked about this the relationship with nature
1: well, yes, what I wanted Hod to be in the novel. a few reviewers understood this but got this but was actually a symbol of in a sense of, of where we are now i mean he 's like the arch capitalist arch you know free market capitalist Hobbesian. Hobbesian exactly, but the sense that he's, he doesn 't believe in limits. He thinks there are no limits, limitlessness is the idea. Now that is an absolute definition of liberal capitalism. There should be no limits.
0: That's right, the market rules. The market
1: rules. And we've seen the chaos, the near catastrophe that's happened. And and it it doesn't seem to me as if there's going to be any real breaks put on it. I mean, already the, the bankers are starting to pay themselves bonuses and so on. And we know that the source of this, the source of this is actually greed. If not, then it's psychopathological. Clearly the world is massively unequal. And globally, I don't think we've ever been more unequal. The rich have never been richer in North America or in Europe or whatever, in Japan and so on, and the poor, in, you know, in Africa and Asia, have never been poorer.
0: That's what Robin
1: Hood's all about, isn't Exactly. It? What I do is subvert the romantic take on, on Robin Hood and have him as this symbol of limitlessness and no constraints, as I say, psychopathological behaviour.
0: But we wish for otherwise, don't we? We wish
1: for otherwise, and what's what the novel is saying? Because the novel is narrated by this very old monk who is remembering when he was a boy. He's the innocent in your tableau there. He remembers ending up with Robert Hard, aka Robin Hood, in in this copse, this scraggy
0: copse. It's not a lush forest. It's is not. It? No, that's the <laughs> other thing. That's the other
1: myth that medieval England was covered in forest. We'd lost an awful lot of, the, of, of woodland by then, and that period, that area, in fact, would have been because he's not in Sherwood. Mm -hmm. Robin Hood and the Monk doesn't take place in Sherwood. That area would have been largely small woods or copses. So he's there in his rather pathetic copse on the hill. (laughs) Um, So the monk is basically his confession as to how he not only became a heretic by joining Robin Hood and the Brotherhood of the Three Spirits, but also killing, because he's the one that kills. He becomes much... Much the middle son and, and kills the little boy, and this is the great tragic event of his yeah. life. And this is a confession by the monk, so it's a personal account.
0: Well, he's saying that he's also he's also responsible for this myth.
1: That's exactly what I was yeah. going to say.
0: Yeah. He is
1: responsible for the myth because he escaped. He did earn his living. He started singing already about harm which had already endeared him to this psychopathic figure. The, the worst sin for him is that he's responsible for turning this this dreadful character into, uh, you know, a social hero, and all of the rough, nasty bits got sort of... Well, already, of course, he was praising Hod to his own ears. I mean, already his ballad, his version, was already a eulogy, because that's how he kept alive.
0: Ingratiate he ingratiates yeah.
1: himself. He carries on afterwards, when he escapes from the wood, just in order to eat. And he's obviously very gifted, but his ballad about Hod is the most popular and has him sort of being a kind of minor celebrity in the, in the area so that and it spreads I mean the key moment as well later in the novel is when he comes across he hears his own ballad being sung by another minstrel that's ponder, the sign of success sort of out of his control <laughs> and um, he feels
0: guilt at this complete I mean as yes. uh, a very old monk and he wants to set the record straight yeah
1: he remembers when he's already you know very old and he's 94 and he's writing this because he's writes it in 1305 and he remembers going into the monastery garden and hearing someone singing the ballad that he wrote many many decades before and of course it's changed it's altered it, it's grown it's, it's uh, softened it's smoothed over so it's a way of explaining the origin in a sense be it the novel attempts to be an authentic explanation an exposition as you might say of why of how this legend first came into being
0: well uh, the forests may not be lush but certainly the dialogue and the dialect is dense in, the, in a positive way it's mm-hmm you really do have to pay attention. It's as poetry. So I wonder, um, there are a couple of things. I'd like you to read a little bit more out of it, but not right at this very minute because I s- want to slip one more question in or observation And that. Is, I like the way you, the novelist, you're sort of twice removed from this. You do what Nabokov did in Lolita. Why did you do that?
1: This is one of the oldest tricks in the book, in fiction. Uh, Robinson Crusoe, Daniel Defoe, pretended it was a, a real diary. Walpole's The Castle of Otranto, which is the first gothic novel, lays claim to a whole genre. He went to great lengths to pretend that it was a medieval document, uh, and got into trouble over it, of course.
0: Well, um, you look at Shakespeare, too. He's, he's very, very clever at being, not seditious, but uh, you're removing your, not the responsibility for what you've written, but, but in a way, if it blows up, well, you're, you're okay, because you're In a
1: sense, although it's fairly self-conscious, I mean...
0: Everyone know, know. knows, yes.
1: I didn't find this.
0: And Why did you start off that way, though?
1: Because, well, it is very interesting. It's possibly a psychological need on my part to pretend, as I'm writing it, that this is an authentic document with footnotes.
0: The, the, the footnotes are legitimately accurate.
1: They are. Yes, they are. I mean, I invent certain books, but basically they are authentic. And I love footnotes. I, love, I mean, it's got into in trouble with some of the reviewers, of course there are too many footnotes and so on. 400, yeah, I think. 400 footnotes. Yeah. So it, it really is like a scholarly text. Yeah. And I wanted to kind of... There are two voices on each page, but certainly wherever there are footnotes. You've got the, the main text, and you've got this other voice of the footnotes, commenting on the main text, undermining its... Lyricism with so-called historical scholarship, but it's historical scholarship that's, that's already dated because it's from a specific time. It's written, you know, an English of its time. The footnotes are uh, uh, sound dated, sound historical, and yet we're only talking about not, not even a lifetime ago. History moves very, very fast. The text is is about the 13th century, which is a kind of another planet away. Really. Yeah. So the whole idea is, is it makes the reader think about how they read. Do you, for instance, on a very basic level, read the footnote when you get to the end of the page? Do you interrupt your reading to read the footnote? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this bothers a lot of people, but it's a fascinating process. Reading is an active thing.
0: Well, look what Kutsida did. He has three of narratives strung across the same page. Absolute,
1: yes, and, absolutely, yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, that's the same idea you, you also cited Nabokov, who, who of course was a great master of the footnote and to the point where it actually takes over the main text. I mm-hmm. don't go that far. The point, of course, I wanted to hint at in, in my pseudo-introduction is that this entire thing could be a forgery. I mean, the translator also has severe gambling debts. The original <laughs> is lost, apparently, in a fire, so we don't <laughs> actually have the original and so on. This, wasn't, this is only recognised, I think, by one reviewer, that the entire enterprise... Well, obviously it's a forgery already. Yes. Um, <laughs> could it actually be in itself a forgery? Also, you've got to remember, of course, that the the, the copy that he found was already a copy, a fifteenth-century copy of a 13th, uh, the thirteenth, early fourteenth-century original. Yeah. So you've got the copyist's
0: mistakes and that sort of thing. Well, you look at Shakespeare as well, and it's the printers are you know the absolutely changed the
1: text. We're looking through a sort of fog, yeah, and somewhere there is the original, and that's... For me, it's very symbolic, really, of looking at history. History is about the past. The past has disappeared, it's gone. There are traces of it left, even of our own lives, but of a his- big history, let's say, not microhistory, mm. of documents and so on. I mean, history, prehistorical life, is without, uh, without written language. There's no record. History begins with the word, with the written word that is the definition of history mm.
0: and what you say about <coughs> poetry is uh, propos here what you're doing is shape you're shaping history into significant meaning
1: a- absolutely and, and mm-hmm. uh, of course you know all history is bunker whatever henry ford said is, there's a lot of truth in that it's it's an attempt to get at the truth of the past but of course it's it's provisional everything everything we say about the past is provisional mm-hmm. we know this within our own families well
0: and, and all you have to have is one discovery of a of another manuscript to put Paid to what you've just said. Well,
1: the extraordinary event that happened when I, I sent my proof off, and that's it. It was a huge enterprise, hard, you know, seven years sort of thinking about and writing and so on. I finally sent it off and said, my God, i don't have to think about Robin Hood again in my life. You know? <laughs> yes. And then I got an email on the Saturday, I sent it off on the Friday, on the email I got a Saturday saying, there's been a new manuscript discovery relating to Robin Hood. And it was in the papers. Robin Hood, a hoodlum was Robin Hood a villain and so on and the fact is this had been in Eton College Library all the time and I'd done research there as well nobody had noticed this before but in the margin was written at this it was a historical chronicle historical chronicle it was written in Latin and a monk sometime in the 15th century had written in the margin at this date which was about I think the 12. sometime in the 13th century I can't remember what the date was now the outlaw Robin Hood was infesting forests with many robberies so it was a very negative picture of Robin Hood. Now, OK, it was the monk writing it, so clearly the church was anti-Robin Hood. But it's actually the first citation about Robin Hood ever discovered in an English chronicle. And it's treating the character as if he was real, and he was infesting the, the forest. There are two in Scottish chronicles, but this is the first in, uh, in an English chronicle. As I say, it was discovered as I was putting the finishing touches to, to hard. i heard of it. it. Does it give meaning to what you've... It really did because it was also a medieval document, a 15th-century medieval document mm. in which this marginalia was discovered.
0: It which was like a blessing.
1: It was. I felt it was, and of course it helped me a lot because I then ended up on the Today programme, BBC Radio Four, which is, you know has nine million listeners or something, talking with the professor from St Andrews University in Scotland who made this discovery, and he's written an academic report about it. And as a today presenter said, it's quite extraordinary. It's a 15th century document, yours is a 15th century document, it's marginalia, you have marginalia in yours, and so on and so forth. So it really was quite extraordinary.
0: Well, perhaps we could just finish off, if there's the particular passage that...
1: What about the first appearance of Robin Hood? Wonderful. Okay, this is the narrator who's, say, a 14-year-old, 13, 14-year-old boy at the time, and he's in the wood, he's just been captured, attempting to retrieve his harp, which has been stolen. By the outlaws. And this is the first appearance of the guru or the the chief, or whatever you like to call him, Robert Hodd. A man appeared from one of the bigger huts, beyond the smoke of the central fire. A certain movement among the assembled men scattered about, leaning against trees or squatting on their haunches, gave sign that he was the chief. His tightly woven mantle kept off rain most nimbly, for I could see that it was greasy and the drops that fell from the branches were dispurpled by it. It might once have been a fine red, but was now the colour of dried blood and had a great hood behind, in which several faces might have been concealed, and beneath the cloak was a thick pelisse of wool. He came towards us, stopping at some three yards' distance. The smoke thickened, and hiding all behind him as the sea-fog doth our present coast made it look as the underworld must appear beyond the prince of hell. I recognised him as the very villain, calling himself the chief, who had taken my master's purse and examined the coins most lustily. Examined the coins most lustily. His eyes were still somewhat swollen in their sockets as one sees in drowned men and the blemish on his brow most like a splash of molten wax. I did not realise that drunkenness was so deep in him that it did not show upon the surface until he was angered. I guessed his age at twenty-six or seven, although he was at that time over thirty. This must indeed be Robert Hod. I said to myself with a pang of fear.
0: Thanks very much for cooperating with me.
1: Okay, it's been a great pleasure.
0: Yeah. Adam Thorpe was born in Paris in 1956. He's the author of eight previous novels, including Alverton, and, most recently, Before Hod, The Standing Pool, two collections of short stories and five books of poetry. It's in France with his wife and family. Thank you. Thanks very much.